The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, trainings, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Sean Sherman an Oglala Lakota chef and founder of the Sioux Chef and the North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. He's also the author of The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. Sean is named one of the 10 most important emerging spiritual leaders of our time by Spirituality and Health magazine, and a profile of Sean appears in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health. Sean Sherman, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm interested. I mean, you're welcome. And I'm, I'm actually very curious about this. And I'm completely ignorant of it. So, you know, I'll ask basic questions and, and you can flesh them out a little bit with, with answers. But I want to start with the North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems Program. So on the Sous Chef website, uh, Natif is defined as an effort to bring health in, uh, indigenous foods to communities across Turtle Island. So, I mean, I've heard the phrase Turtle Island before, but I, I want to just go into that before we get to the foods themselves. What, um, give us the mythology of Turtle Island. And it's not, you know, it's some tribes, not all tribes. And what you have in mind when you refer to North America as Turtle Island, why use that phrase? Well, there's um, a lot of common stories and mythologies and religions, um, you know, around North America, especially on the East Coast and some of the Central Plains, where it's a belief that, you know, everything was born from this rock, um, which was you know, on the back of a turtle, henceforth, you know, a very simplic- simplistic uh, viewpoint of Turtle Island. Um, so it's very commonly used across Native tribes today. Um, and <clears throat> I guess if you're non-Native, then it might be a new term for you, but it's it's pretty common in the Native tribes out there today. So I'm, I'm familiar with the story and, and, and actually with the term Turtle Island, 
But I was wondering, so, so and maybe I'm just romanticizing and reading something into it, but North America just sounds like a geographic place on a map, whereas Turtle Island, because I have a thing for turtles, I mean, Turtle Island, Island gives you a sense that it is um, not exactly fragile, but, but exposed, and Turtle connects you to another species, you know, to, to a whole different a whole different um, life form. And, and, and I'm just wondering if in the work that you're doing, trying to bring people this deeper understanding of food, if in fact, whether it was conscious or not, I don't know, but that this, the, you know, speaking of North America as Turtle Island sort of gets the audience, especially those of us who are not normal, you know, we're, we're not native, that uh, to get those of us who are not native it, it stirs something, or am I just completely romanticizing this? You know, it's a, it's a special connection, I think, um, because when we started, you know, I come up in the culinary world. I'm a chef, you know, I was born on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, which happens to be the, the poorest county in all of the United States ever since inception, basically. And, um, Growing up, uh, you know, in the I was born in 1974, and at that point in history, it hadn't even been 100 years since the Lakota had lost the Black Hills, um, and you know, pine people were being pushed onto Pine Ridge. So it was a very short history of uh, time span. Um, so I was really curious um, as a chef because I had an epiphany one day of realizing that there wasn't um, any Native American restaurants anywhere. And I realized also as a chef that, you know, I could name hundreds of European recipes and I could only think of a handful of Lakota recipes that might be, you know, very true to, um, their roots, you know, so looking for foods that didn't have a can of cream of mushroom soup in it per se. Right. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> the, so, uh, shot me on this path to really understand the connection to the land, because I knew that the indigenous people like my fairly recent ancestors, you know, were growing up traditional and living off of the land. Um, and I was very curious as to like that knowledge of what they're eating and what they're gathering and harvesting and who they were trading with and how they're getting things like salt, fats, and sugars. And I was really looking at, um, you know, just trying to understand the food system through a culinary point of view. Um, and, you know, I start to see more and more of the tribes as I start to learn more about Lakota, I start to, you know, researching more about where I'm at now is in Minneapolis and about the Minneapolis tribes. And I start learning more and more and more about all this diverse tribe that we still have around us today. Cause there's still 573 tribes in the U S federally recognized 634 in Canada and Mexico up to a fifth of the population is still speaking indigenous languages. So there's a lot of indigenous culture across North America. So wiping away, you know, the, the lines of uh, U.S., Canada, Mexico, but looking at the underlying nature of it and how people were surviving off of these lands for so long and this deep connection that they have had in their own, in their own ways, you know, because there's so much diversity of, of belief systems and religions throughout this immense groups, these immense, the immense diversity of groups that are throughout this whole area. Um, but everybody was sharing these commonalities of like this super deep respect to the earth and to the land and to the plants um, and being really a part of the land system and being like true stewards of the land. Um, even when you had large civilizations like, you know, the Aztecs um, who were definitely building a lot of stuff, but also very aware of the landscape and really kind of working with the nature around them also, not destroying it. 
So for me, um, you know, finding some of these old prayers and some of these old ways of giving respect back to the land and to the earth and just that believing that everything was alive and everything was a part of it and that you weren't better than it. It was just, you were all a part of the same in a sense, but it took this kind of give and take situation of putting that respect back into the earth. Yeah. And a lot of Western mythology or Middle Eastern mythology, people are not necessarily connected to the earth at all. Or even when we are, we're sort of the masters of all the other animals and fish, et cetera. Uh, but I, I don't want rather than go there, which is more my comfort zone, I want to ask you a question about being a chef or um, more, more specifically a, a Lakota chef, chef. So I, um, one of my teachers, she's deceased now, but I was very, very close to her, uh, uh, Jose Hobde. Now she was Seneca Iroquois and she did a lot of teaching while cooking. And the impression I got from, well, it wasn't an impression. I mean, I heard her say it, that cooking is for women, not in the negative sense, but that, that the true mystic meaning of the food, it, it's part of women's mysteries. Now I'm, I'm putting words in her mouth. This is not how she actually said it, but that, that the art of cooking and cooking, I mean, she would cook and she would teach at the same time, not about the food, just teach, but she was cooking, you know, others would be meditating, but, but she was cooking. And the, what she said was that cooking was part of the women's mystery. So I'm wondering who taught you to cook? Um, part of it was a lot of, out of necessity, um, just because we grew up really poor, like a lot of tribes on Pine Ridge, because you know, back in the back in the late early '80s and late '70s, you know, unemployment on that reservation was probably pushing 98 percent. There was not a lot of jobs, obviously, going on down there. Um, so when my mom moved us off the reservation. Um, I started working in restaurants immediately as just as a means to um, start having money. Um, and I didn't really realize I was going to become a chef until a little bit later in life because I just worked really hard. I had a really good head on my shoulders. So I absorbed a lot um, from books. Um, and when I had a chance to become a chef in Minneapolis, I just kind of jumped on it. Um, and I found myself kind of naturally good at it. And, you know, cooking has been something that I've been doing now. And, you know, I'm 44. So I've been cooking for over 30 years at this point, um, which is a big chunk of my lifetime. Um, and it is, you know, something that's really special to me and it's something that I really enjoy personally. And, um, you know, adding this layer of understanding the food ways of my own ancestors and how they were utilizing all these plants and animals. Right. Which is, which is what I'm asking you. Yeah. Which is what I'm asking you about. So did you learn that from a grandmother or from your mother or you had to go out and find this on your own. Yeah, because it was the information was shattered. Because um, mm. when you look at the history, of, when you look at the history of it, you know the colonization of the western part of the U.S., which really happens in the 1800s and really towards the latter part of the century. So, like I look at my grand great grandfather's life. He was born in the 18 late 1850s, and during his lifetime, you know, he starts off growing traditional on the plains with the Lakota. But he sees these uh, um, ever-growing battles with the U.S. government. He sees the formation of Pine Ridge Reservation. Um, he sees, like, the Battle of Little Bighorn. He was 18 during that battle with the Lakota. 
And he also, you know, sees his kids growing up in boarding school situations where they're being forced to taught uh, English and cutting their hair. I mean, so much happens during that lifetime. And we really look at the destructive qualities of the of things. So the assimilation efforts um, by the, you know, U.S. and Canadian govern, governments especially were extremely damaging to the Native cultures because uh, all these kids should have been learning these, you know, thousands of years of generational knowledge that should have been passed down to maintain these cultures, all that was getting wiped away, you know, and replaced with, you know, kind of an American Americanism in a sense, right? right. By the time I was born in the seventies, a lot of that knowledge was passed. So I was born, um, you know, surviving off of the commodity food program, which is just a lot of really poorly and over processed food products, um, which, you know, makes, uh, we have lots of statistics of how sick people could become if that's their only form of nutrition you know, for many years. So when I had the epiphany of really trying, uh, just seeing the, the missing, the, just how there were no Native American restaurants or anything in culinary out there, um, it just really pushed me to try to understand it, utilizing a lot of the educational methods that I'd used in the past. So I kind of looked at it like, you know, taking a broken pot and finding pieces here and there. So a lot of books, talking to elders from different tribes, um, just going out there physically and starting to learn these plants and playing with them myself and looking at, looking at it through a culinary lens and trying to understand how people would have processed things very simply in the old days. So making a lot of judgment calls, but, you know, slowly finding more and more facts as they, as they kind of walked through it. But definitely like every time we go and we do some of these decolonized dinners where we're, you know, cutting out all the European ingredients and using only the indigenous ingredients of that particular region, um, it really wakes up a lot of those older memories. So a lot of the elders will come up to us after a dinner and say, oh, you know, I forgot all about these flavors. Like my grandmother used to harvest this out there in the forest and we used to know where all the paths were to gather the food. And I haven't had that flavor for so long. And you can just see the, the energy pouring out of them from, you know, remembering, um, which is such a powerful piece too. What, what a, that, that is so interesting. I mean, the, it's not surprising now that you mention it and we think about it for a second, but it's such a powerful notion that the flavor can bring back these memories. I mean, that, that is, is really interesting. So let, let's just unpack that a little bit more because you, you said, you know, not using the, the standard European food. So I know that in your cooking, you're, you're avoiding wheat and dairy, among other things, and you emphasize corn, beans, and squash. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So is there something, and, and maybe the answer is no, but is there something, do, do you think there's something off like like psycho spiritually that focusing on wheat and dairy uh creates a certain kind of personality a different kind of personality than a corn beans and squash based diet is there is there something spiritual about the diet itself i would say there is something spiritual about this diet itself because we started researching you know native american agriculture has a huge long history starting from the base of mexico and shooting both directions, north and south, you know, into into both Americas as we know it today, and crawling up in the entire eastern seaboard up into parts of Canada, all the way up the Mississippi and Missouri River Valleys. And we look at, like, all of this food that came out of it, all these different varieties of corns and beans and squash, all these agricultural styles of people being able to grow these things from, you know, swamplands to uh, desert areas to Great Plains where there's very short growing seasons. Um, and you know, one of the, one of the best books that I found in my research was one called Buffalo Bird Woman's Garden, which chronicles a Hadatsa woman named Buffalo Bird Woman. And she writes about all of her memories as a Hadatsa woman growing up um, on the Missouri River Valley and how she had learned farming. And it was the female's role, like you had mentioned a little bit before, they did all of this farming and gardening. Um, and you know, it's all these beautiful memories. So it's such a unique indigenous agricultural perspective. Um, but it's also this really rare female voice that comes out of that time period, especially from an indigenous person, which you never see. So there's this really deep connection to a lot of these particular strains of corns and beans and squash that are coming from very specific regions and tribes and, and areas. So you have all these corns from Hadatsa, Nandan, and you know Iroquois, and Ponca, and Apache, and you know, it's all over the board. So it's really special for a lot of these tribes to have held on to some of these seeds um, throughout uh, uh, this really harsh uh, time period of this colonization against them. Um, and, you know, returning to a lot of that knowledge of the food that's particularly around them. So for us, it's not like we didn't like dairy and wheat flour and processed cane sugar and stuff like that. It's just that we were trying to get to the heart and the root, the true roots of the foods that were here and the flavors that were here around us. Um, and it's something that's so unique, especially to these tribes who can relate because their ancestors have been living on these lands for so, so many um, generations that it's something that they can share in real time with those ancestors. So that, I mean, that makes complete sense to me. One of the things, actually, I have two questions around this. One is a, a little abstract and the other is more practical. Let's deal with the practical one first. So you do eat meat. And I know that a lot of listeners to this podcast, subscribers to spirituality and health are wrestling with, with, you know, eating meat. They're either vegetarians or they're vegans or they're moving in that direction or they feel guilty about not moving in that direction. What would you want them to know about eating meat? You know, with us, you know, because of the, the methodology that we used to, um, approach which ingredients we're using, we completely cut out beef, pork, and chicken 
um, all together because those are pieces that weren't here um, in many regions up until fairly recently in history, right? So um, for us, we started looking at meat and, pro- and alternate proteins around us because literally any of these animals are game for people to utilize. So, you know, we've used everything from squirrels to muskrats to moose to bear to deer, rabbit, um, quail, turkey, fish, like the list goes on and on. Excuse me, the list goes on and on. And especially if you're by the ocean, you have a whole other food system, you know, right off the shoreline. Um, so, but when we're also, because we're removing dairy and some of these things and we're not following typical French recipes that most people are accustomed to, a lot of the food that we're utilizing doesn't even have any protein in it. It's all plant-based. So, you know, we are actually, since I've been running my catering company, serving these indigenous foods for four years now. And the majority of our offerings are plant-based um, completely. So we end up being extremely dietary friendly because we're gluten-free, sugar-free, soy-free, dairy-free, pork-free, as it just happens to be that way. Um, and it makes for an extremely healthy diet. So for people who, oh, I don't know, they look at, they look at a plant and they see one level of consciousness and they look at a, a fish or they look at a turkey and they see a higher level of consciousness and they go, oh, I can't, or some people say, I just don't want to eat anything with a face. That, you don't have a moral quandary with that. Is that fair to say? Well, for a lot of the tribes, you know, um, harvesting an animal was a big deal also. So they put a lot of prayer and respect into it. And there'd be a lot right. of ceremony because I grew up, grew up with Lakota culture. So harvesting a bison was a lot of ceremony to get to the point of harvesting the actual animal and then making sure absolutely nothing was wasted. So nobody was taking these proteins for granted, you know. Um, so again, it's just a deeper connection to the animal itself, um, and the respect that went into the animal for giving up its life, um, to, um, offer itself to the people that were going to live off of it, basically. Yeah. I think in, in ancient cultures, I mean, I'm just thinking while you're talking, you know, about, about my own Jewish background. I mean, the original diet in the Bible is vegan, and then people are allowed to eat meat after the story of the flood because there was the land was too wet and you couldn't grow anything. But the way you could only eat certain kinds of animals and then you just couldn't eat them randomly. I mean, there was a whole ritual that had to go through with it. There was this, at least in, in theory, you know, there was this, uh, a lot of spiritual, a lot of prayer, a lot of, a lot of respect for the animal over time. That's not the case. I mean, now kosher slaughtering is just another industry, but, but, Ancients, um, you know, had a had a different different approach to this. We're, we're going to run up against the clock here, and, and I and I want to ask you something else that uh, is again pretty abstract. Um, I'm really taken with this idea that you're you know you you're creating these foods, and then um, elders are are eating them, and the smell, the taste brings back all of these memories. It sounds to me, and you can. I'm curious if you've thought of this or if it just sounds crazy to you. It sounds to me that in a sense, what you're doing is an act, not only of reclamation of, you know, bringing back these traditions and these, these foods, but of resistance. Uh, you know, like you said, you, the, the system in, in the United States, the whole system was designed to strip you of your culture and that this is a way of pushing back against that. Not just, but again, not just reclaiming what you, you lost, 
but a resistance against further erosion in, in a very positive celebratory way. Does that make sense to you or am I again, you know? Definitely, because, you know, we, people will say, you know, we use the term decolonization and stuff like that sometimes, but reclamation is a better term for what we're doing. And overall, we use terms more like this is an indigenous revolution and evolution at the same time because of the constant state of oppression that most indigenous tribes have endured over the past, you know, couple centuries um, and having lost so much of their foodways, um, you know, a lot of that uh, culture being completely destroyed to be able to start to piece it back together and give it back and to showcase how impactful this can be um, by eating some of these traditional foods that are directly related to, you know, all these diverse groups out there is something that people are really um, excited about. And we're at the stage where we're not just trying to push, um, you know, all traditional recipes and treating everything like it's 1491, but um, having this chance to evolve with it. Um, and it was, you know, a, you know, a test for us. And, you know, we purposely, you know, cut out all those European ingredients just to prove a point that we could do it. Um, and we just really believe in the regeneration um, aspect and opportunities that can be created around these food systems, especially in these tribal communities that have suffered from a lot of foodborne illnesses because of being stuck on commodity food programs and stuff like that. We see upwards to like 60% type 2 diabetes in some communities and, you know, just absolutely no jobs and no food and no healthy food around them. So we're working really hard. Our whole nonprofit is designed to help pursue indigenous education making it extremely affordable, if not free, for Indigenous peoples to regain this knowledge that they should have had anyways, that their ancestors had passed down for thousands of generations, but also to help create um, food access points by creating these nonprofit restaurants that will help bring very particular, you know, food um, items into their community so they can have at least the access to their, to their own traditional food. Yeah, th- this is really fascinating, obviously very important, and it's clear why spirituality and health magazine saw you as uh, one of the 10 most important emerging spiritual leaders of our time whether you want to take that mantle or not it it sounds appropriate but we are going to have to leave it there sean so uh and and I, i i really have so many more questions and i'm sure our listeners do too but the time is the time our guest today was sean sherman he's an oglala lakota chef and founder of The Sioux Chef and the North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. His book, The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, and his work in this field is what got him named one of Spirituality and Health's Top 10 Spiritual Leaders. A profile of Sean appears in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you want more information on his work, you can visit his website, SiouxChef.com. Sean, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It really was a pleasure. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, training, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour, part pilgrimage, as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites we will visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. 
For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com backslash holyland hyphen with hyphen Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and to download the iTunes app for this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.